I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it is gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Welcome to the Dune Saga Podcast. Your hosts, David, Scott, and Jim, guide you through the chronological epic story of Dune. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Dune Saga Podcast. I'm David Moulton. And I am Scott Herzog. And I'm Jim Arrowwood. And today we're going to be talking about Frank Herbert's Dune. Listeners have been waiting so long for us to get to this. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I can't, it doesn't feel like it's it's been seven months, but man, it has. has. It it's kind of crazy. I was I was thinking the same thing just yesterday. Yeah, I, you know, when we started, I felt like it felt like so far away. And now it's like, man, mm-hmm. where'd time go? But when you're having a good time, right? <laughs> yeah. So, a couple facts about Dune before we get too far. Dune was rejected by 20 publishers and has since become the best-selling science fiction novel of all time, selling more than 12 million copies, Woo-hoo. including millions more in the sequels that followed. So yeah. that's pretty impressive for a single author, yeah. Yeah, abso- absolutely. Um, just a quick another, another quick announcement before we get to any further. We are going to be hosting two screenings. Uh, we are going to be hosting, if you're in the central Pennsylvania area, at Penn Cinema on June 15th, at 3 p.m., we will be hosting David Lynch's Dune. Uh, this is a special screening for Dune fans, and we will be there before to introduce the film and then host a discussion immediately following it. So if you're in the area, we hope to see you there. And that same week on June 18th, which is a Wednesday, at 6 p.m., we will be at Zotropolis Art House to host Jodorowsky's Dune. And uh, also we'll be doing a discussion immediately following that film. That's kind of a big deal for us because it wasn't going to come nearby, and then all of a sudden it kind of just popped up on the radar. So pretty excited about that one for sure. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Yeah. I-, I can never say his name. Joe yeah. Dorowski. Jo- Joe yeah, yeah. Jo- yeah. Say that five times real fast. I'm in deep <laughs> doo-doo. That's, that's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, ju- just uh, to go over some of the things that happened in this book, when we left off from the House Trilogy uh, Paul had just recently been born. Uh, Shaddam was feeling uncomfortable with the amount of um, fame, fame that Leto had. Yep, yep. So when this this kicks off, it's 15 years, correct? Yeah, 15, I think yeah, 15 years have passed. 15 years later, and what we have is the Emperor has forced Leto to give up Caldan and move to Arrakis as his fife. And uh, he's done this because he wants, he fears the popularity of Leto, and he figures he puts him in this place, things will happen. And it turns out he's behind a big plan with the Baron to get rid of Leto and his family so that the Atreides are gone. That happens. Gone, quote, unquote. Yep. Yep. 
Uh, Leto and, um, sorry, Paul and Jessica find themselves in the desert where they must gather with the Fremen. And from the story there, Paul becomes a messiah to the Fremen and uh, the Kwisak Katarak, and then takes back Arrakis and the Empire, actually. And that is a thorough analysis of Dune. Thank yeah. you for joining us tonight on the Dune Saga. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> We're done. <laughs> yeah. The quickest one. No. Yeah. Um, so, uh, are we still going to do the Dune in 10? Yes. So, Dune in 10 <laughs> announcement. Dune in 10 will be up to coincide with this. Uh, House Carino stumbled me for some reason, even though it was short. It just so much happened every time I sat down to write the Dune in 10 for House Carino. My mind went completely blank. And then by the time I was like, okay, I'm ready to do this, I was so far into Dune, I couldn't keep track of, of things. So I'll say this. There, there, right now, there's no plans to do a Dune in 10 for House Carino. But if any of you who are reading along would like to submit one for me to read, I am more than <laughs> glad to, to do it and uh, go over it that way. But at this point, we'll just move forward. Uh, with the Dune and Ten series, so yeah. Well, you could always do you could always do uh, House Carino in ten plus ten. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's just true. Do it, just do it in a half an hour. Yeah, I'll just read Jim's notes that are so great. Uh, they help me a lot when I'm doing oh, Dune well, and Ten thanks. chapter by chapter <laughs> notes uh, for me. So that's Dune. Okay, well, very good. Well, why don't we start off by talking about our overall impressions? Of this book, we made the switch, the jump from the the Kevin and Brian universe into the Frank universe. And what were some impressions and thoughts in general before we get into the nitty gritty? And Jim, why don't we start with you? If we, if you, if you, if you don't mind, um, overall impressions and thoughts as you made the transition from one into the other. Okay, uh, I found the language in Dune. A little bit different than it was in in uh, the other books that we've read so far, Kevin and Brian's books. Uh, the language in Dune was a lot more formal, number one. Number two, uh, the battle scenes were very abbreviated in Dune, whereas they were uh, more fleshed out in the previous books. And those are the two things that stuck out to me. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. David, how about you? I, I'm going to agree with you there. The, the wording was so different. It felt much more personal. Uh, the big thing for me is we followed basically like one storyline, and we didn't jump around a lot. Mm-hmm. I liked that slower pace. I liked the insight that I was able to get from being with these characters longer. It was different, though. It felt It made me feel like the other books – especially the Legends of Dune series, felt like it was written history. And this felt like I was living the experience with the characters. That's uh, which, a good way of putting it. Yeah, which is odd because <laughs> the beginning of every chapter is kind of the written history uh, from Irulan. So, uh, yeah, that's that was my big, my big take on it. A slower pace, except for battles went a lot faster. Details were different. One thing that comes to mind is, uh, when they're taking back Arakeen, uh, they use last guns to cut the nose off of ships so they can't get back into space. If it had been Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson, they would have had, they would have intermixed a character that walked around the corner and saw the like last gun slice through the ship in detail and like how it cut through and stuff. 
Uh, so and the character would have gotten slit right slit in half. Right half. They would have described that in detail, and I'd have been, oh, oh, Brian, yeah. seriously, oh. Yeah. But not before he watched his daughter get sliced in half in front of him. Right, right, yeah. right. And <laughs> described in minute detail, mind you. Uh, and that was actually one of the things that when I transitioned from, you know, Brian and Kevin's universe into Frank's, is you just don't have that grotesque uh, death scenes that you, uh, yeah, I mean, there's death certainly, but just not in the like. Even like the the biggest death for me in this book is, of course, Leto's death, and, and how you kind of get it from his perspective. And then, but even that is not really gruesome. You know, it's mm-hmm. happening. You're you're not you you're kind of anticipating it happening, but it's not in that grotesque detail that they or gratuitous detail that they seem to throw in there sometimes. Um, but that's, uh, you know, again, as far as liking it stylistically, I agree. Very formal writing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. certainly a different pace. And we do switch between families, but it's very few families. And we're only following you know, where the Harkonnens and then the Atreides are really the only two in the Fremen. I mean, these are really the three central families with a little bit of Ben and a little bit of Shaddam, but not really focused on them. Mm-hmm. And maybe toward the end, we're focused on Shaddam a little bit more. Right, mm-hmm. right. So, uh, <clears throat> how did we feel about how quickly they gave away things? Like, I didn't remember. This has been a long time, as it is for all of us. How early on we knew that Yui was the traitor. It's like yes. it's, the story almost starts off with like, like I'm announcing that here is a traitor. Now all that's left to do is to tell you how this goes about. Right. Yeah. It's interesting mm-hmm. because I think in, you know, today's world, you do that and you'd be like, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, you is a traitor, but he does yeah. it right up front. You know, it's just, there's no, uh, there's no question that he is a traitor. So, and it becomes, how's this going to play out? And, and, and how's this going to unravel? And there's no question as if Paul will mm-hmm. become Madib or the Al Lasan Al Gaid. Yeah, like the Irulan stuff yeah. gives that away immediately. So, and just a side note: hello to those of us are, are with our chat. Yeah. By the way, uh, Rick said that Dune was initially serialized as a magazine, so it couldn't be too gratuitous. Oh, I didn't. I, I forgot about that. Do you think that perhaps um, Frank wrote this and put Yui out in front right away, so that we didn't make the same assumptions that Gurney and Tufer did? Yeah, I think so. I guess I I guess if if this book were written today, I would want to say that they would have they would have left the readers guessing at that until the reveal. Yeah. Like I don't think that that would have been out a um this is my presupposition, right? And I uh, you know who's to second guess the way Frank wrote it, but if it were to come mm-hmm. out today, I think that that would have been left hanging to try and lure readers in and to readers today like to figure that stuff out. Maybe I don't know, maybe more so than they did in the 60s, I don't know. Hmm. Did it make you dislike Tufer or Gurney at all? I know when I originally read it, I got angry at them for so easily. How could you not know? Yeah, yeah. She's your (laughs) beloved lady, you know. Uh, Especially Tufer just like will not let go of it, even after their big talk. Yeah. Well, Gurney took her hostage for crying out loud. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, it wasn't easy to convince him either that yeah. that she that she hadn't done it. Yeah. Well, it was it was the Harkonnen plot to make it vague. 
as to who did that. So, mm-hmm. you know, all it all it does is just show that they were successful in what they tried to do. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, not really, because they were alive yet. <laughs> but but yes, you're you're right as far as getting them to disbelieve and getting distrust. Um, I think this is as good a point of any to kind of transition and say we, we're, we're shifting out of again from the Kevin and Brian Frank universe. We have we're shifting into characters that have changed mm-hmm. at least to a they're the same characters, but they're painted slightly differently through the formal language of Frank and through how Frank portrays them. See, Frank and I were in a first name basis. But, <laughs> but uh, so, uh, Jim, uh, do you want to kind of lead us here? Yeah, sure. Uh, from Kevin to Brian and Frank. So how about what did you guys think of Jessica? I thought that she was, she, she was more timid at the beginning of the book than she was at the end of House Carino. And maybe that has to do with the birthing of Paul and becoming a mother, but she seemed more mm-hmm. afraid than, I mean, except for during the birth of Paul, she was definitely scared then, but overall she was more, uh, headstrong, more like strong, m- more willing to go up against things or, or not concerned. And perhaps maybe that's just motherhood and age, but I, I thought that was different. Yeah. No, there's definitely a way that Jessica comes across just a little bit more timid than I kind of picture in the, uh, mm-hmm. In the books where Leto and her are kind of there and they, even, even the relationship between them, very formal and not near as, Hey, let's go into this closet and shag type of relationship <laughs> that they had in the, in Karina, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, even after she becomes a reverend mother, she still seems like there's a part of her with the Fremen, like she's in that lifestyle, but she still views it as like going through the motions because she has to. Right. Not, be, not embracing, like, this is my role in life. Now, to me, she seemed more aloof, uh, more regal. Uh, she understood that she was above everyone. Yeah. I got that, too. I got that, too. And yeah. uh, one parallel I think you can draw there is in the uh, prequel books, the Benny Gesserit have that air to them. And in the beginning, she doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wonder if that's uh, when you, that's like one of those preconditionings from your upbringing hmm. that came along. Yeah, and then, maybe. Uh, maybe, you know, as she got used to being the Royal concubine or whatever, she kind of took that up. Yeah. Well, and she started to take her role as a Benny Gesserit more seriously. Yes. I was going to say the chat room is just saying that, you know, Je- Jess saw it, Je- first name basis here. Je- <laughs> Jess saw what would happen with Leto if the move to June with Dune, it's right there in the beginning of Dune, Ryan White says. So it's kind of like from the get go, he, he, she knows and she's kind of there molding, instructing and maybe to a fault. Yeah. Well, that's another comment about, mm-hmm. we knew that Yui was the traitor right away, but the, the another surprising thing, was that the Atreides also knew they were walking straight into a trap. And right. They, like, from the very, it wasn't even like we, there might be a trap here. It was like, it's coming and it's, we're just getting ready for it. You know, we need to talk about Yui a little bit. Oh. Do you feel bad for Yui in the end? Like, no doubt he's a traitor. He's done something terrible. He's betrayed Lato, but 
He's also saved. If this setup was inevitable, mm-hmm. which is kind of sound, I mean, he was just kind of the pawn, right? Mm-hmm. If this was inevitable, did he do the best thing by saving Paul and Jessica? And do we feel bad for him just because he's kind of between a rock and a hard place? I'll let you go first, Jim. <laughs> okay. No, I don't. I don't at all feel bad for him. He not only betrayed. Uh, House Atreides, he betrayed his conditioning, um, and there was nothing to do it for. I mean, he should have known that the Baron was going to do away with his wife right from the beginning, mm-hmm. and that he had no hope of, of getting back to her. So he he basically brought down the house for nothing. Yeah, yeah. I here's the thing. I don't think that I feel sorry for him. I do feel like he has a moment of redemption in the fact that he provides an out for uh, Jessica and Paul and the tooth. And he does. Yeah, he does try to kill the Baron, the Baron, even though it fails. Yeah. But I can't help but Mm -hmm. second guess his entire motives because he's married to a Benny Gesserit. And I can't imagine that as long as their marriage was from, we know from the other books that he would, um, be willing to put so much on the line for his wife. I would have thought that she would have had that Benny Gesserit of like sacrifice for the, the many type of thing ingrained to her that she would have passed on to him. Uh, but I don't know. I, I also wonder why he was married to a Benny Gesserit. Cause you know, they don't just go to anybody. Yeah. Without reason. So, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, I don't yep. know. How about, how about the, the, the differences in, in Leto's character? What did, what did you think of that, Scott? Uh, a man hardened by 15 years of time. You yeah. know, because you just have, you know, I found, uh, Leto to be very, uh, personable when you got into the, uh, prequel books. And obviously you're looking at a different writer, very much formal, uh, clearly caring for Jessica and for Paul, um, and worried and concerned about them in the certain events that happened early on in the novel, but very formal and, uh, a little bit distant. That would be my impression of him anyways. Yeah. Here's a man under extreme pressure. Right? Like he's done all these grand things and because of it gained all this fondness in the Lancerad. And now he's being punished in what looks to be like the greatest gift of all, you know, fiefdom of Arrakis. He's being punished and he knows that he's been put in the line of fire and he doesn't deserve it. So he's just so concerned. I mean, we just think of the family, you know, initially when you think of who's moving, but you got to remember that that Leto was uh he was a duke so he brought thousands of people with him so it wasn't even just his family that he was concerned about he had a lot of lives depending on him and that were on the line that were most likely going to get blown up or or destroyed uh killed right so i mean that is a lot of pressure i mean i'm not i don't have a fam- family to to think about in something like that but as family men yourself, I can only imagine that even just considering your immediate family, that would be a difficult thing to undertake. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more with you guys. Uh, assessment there i i could and i can't add anything to that it's perfect yeah i i'm wondering how about let's talk about duncan and maybe lump gurney in on that too uh the two warrior leaders well let me talk about duncan a little bit duncan is in my opinion compared to the role he had in the other books seemed very underplayed i mean that's just i mean i understand I've heard rumors, even though I haven't read the subsequent books, that he is not really dead, right? You know, we have what the – what do they call him? The Golan or whatever Golas. they call him. Yeah, the Golas. Yeah. So he's not totally gone, right, even though I haven't read it. But uh, the Duncan Idaho I knew and just the way he carried himself uh, comes off again a little bit different. Um, but again, we see him mostly through Paul's eyes. Mm-hmm. And we don't see the relationship he necessarily has with Leto, at least very thoroughly. We have a little bit of intera- interaction with them, but we see him interact with Jessica um, and with Paul a little bit, and that is about it. We don't see just a ton of him in this in this in this in this uh, book. Mm-hmm. No, to me, he comes off. I, I loved the character in the initial read through uh, many years ago, but now reading it now, I'm, I realize he's so such a small character and he comes off as a uh, big headed, almost a prick to a degree. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. Well, especially like, when he's drunk on spice wine. Yeah. He's just kind of like <laughs> uh, spice beer. Yeah. He's like, I, you know, I'm the man and I've proven that I'm the man several times over. So come at me, bro. You know, yeah. bring yeah. it on, Jessica. What are you going to do to me? Huh? Yeah. Huh? Trader girl. Huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But he bought time for everybody to get away, so he was heroic, heroic as hell, as far as I'm concerned. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No yeah. doubt, no doubt. He he dies <laughs> valiantly, right? But. And it's funny though because now, thinking of it now, I see a lot of the other sword masters in him because I remember us commenting on how they were very pompous when he was in training. Not very true. Yeah, but you know what? He did not. The only place that I thought he came off as pompous though was when he was drunk. I yeah. mean, other than that, I didn't see. And I mean, the chat room's asking. I mean, Roland, a couple of people are saying, is this kind of out of character for Duncan to be drunken like this? We don't see him in this sort of compromising way anywhere else yeah. in the Dune universe so far. Yeah. But again, very underplayed character in the Dune book. Right. I, I, I wonder, it's kind of hinted that his drunkenness is not his fault, uh, in that, in that scene. And I kind of, one thing I was never clear, they kind of make it sound like the Fremen drunk, made him drunk, but he was part of the Fremen community at this point, so why would they do that? So it, it had to been, uh, Yui doing something to his drink to. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I don't know if it's, I don't think it's ever explained, but. No, I don't think either. Yeah. And how about how about Gurney? More subdued. Where Duncan's turned up an amp, Gurney's turned back, in my opinion. Except for that one scene where he wants to take out Jessica. Except for that one. He just seems like a very regal, not regal, uh, Mm. strong arm kind of guy, like kind of just brooding, standing there, giving off advice. he can handle the situation, but he doesn't need to brag about it. I think one of the ah, Patrick Stewart, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we know the the one thing we do need to talk about. We're going to talk about Gurney Halleck. Is we didn't talk about Leah Kynes, but their relationship 
in the Dune prequel books is very amiable. They have a very good relationship. When we get here, it is cold and distrustful. Right. There, there's, there's a distinct shift in that. Any sort of explanation that you guys take from that? Well, I, I, in looking up for this specific thing, I know we're going to cover uh, differences here uh, in a couple minutes. But what I, when looking it up, one of the things that I thought that made complete sense to me is Liet. It's been 15 years, one. And so he's more hardened by the desert. So he's, his physicality has got to have changed. And then two, he went by another name prior. Right. So he could be visually changed enough and going by a different name could be enough for Gurney to not recognize him. Right. In my opinion, because mm. it was a Wekik, right? Or, well, Wekik, I can't even remember. Yeah. It was a W name that he went outside of the, the siege. So yeah. that that was my, I mean, I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Because I completely forgot he went by another name. Yeah. And you, yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no indication that they met before in this book is our chat rooms talking about it. Um, and Crunk Lord saying that Gurney commands a band of smugglers which is kind of cool, but it's not the first time that he's commanded a band of smugglers either. No. Because he took over for uh, House Verney's guy. Right. When Dominic, Dominic well, had him as, as a, a general or whatever you want to call yeah. I call him ahead of his his guys. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's a natural play, and and they played on that. I mean, they don't mention anything big about it, but they, you know, he's the guy that they send off to the smugglers and, right. and stuff, right? So. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, we didn't talk. I get the meaning to talk about uh, Emperor Shaddam and uh, the Harkonnens. Uh, I think the Baron especially comes out. Uh, what do you? How do you feel about the Baron in this book versus the prequel books a little bit? Um. Definitely not quite as much comic relief as he was in the first six books we've read. <laughs> uh, yeah, deadly serious, uh, even maybe feeling like he's been backed into a corner mm-hmm. and trying to find a way out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think he, I think he's just really ready for a fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I, you also got that he's accepted his persona that he puts forward in the other books. Right. Uh, you know, he, he, in the other he, books, he's kind of wrestling with it, but here he's kind of into this place of acceptance. Yeah. And he even, he even like, Oh, I'm so hungry right now. Like in the middle of the meeting with Shaddam, he's like, I wonder if there's food. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's one, there's one point he's described as a pig by Thufer. So yeah. Well, I know that was a, Something he wanted people to think of him before, but it seemed like he's lived up to it now, uh, mm-hmm. even more so. Uh, yeah. How about how about the emperor? Too removed. I mean, he's there at the end, but you know who's a small character, and that they they you get that there's power behind them, but you know there's almost nothing about them, and that's Count Fenring. Yeah, like he's such a small part in this book. He's there, but he's such. Yeah, yeah. I just don't. Yeah, other than I mean, yeah. Paul. Paul acknowledges that there's. Hey, this this guy is dangerous. Yeah, he could be the. You know, he's he's a, a failed Quizak Hederick. So yeah, yeah. Any other notes about either of those two? No. Okay. Well, I think I'll take us here to um, other differences. We're going to talk about things that could have changed that changed between. Kevin J. Anderson and Brian Herbert and to the Frank Herbert 
books. I'm not on a first name basis like Scott. Oh, you know me. Big me time Frank, over here. Me and Frank. We go way back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in our notes here, first thing we have are the Benny Jesuits. One thing to note is their psychic powers are gone and replaced with an emphasis on the power of physical control over themselves. Uh, any thoughts on this process? <clears throat> uh, it's a difference. <laughs> and uh, it's a, you know, it's, it's interesting that we have this sort of difference here. Uh, I, I guess you could argue that the spice does enhance their mental projection and gives them a sense of psychic powers. But if anything, if anyone has any psychic ability is actually Paul, who is a product of the Bene Gesserits, that you could argue he himself is kind of a descendant of the Bene Gesserits. And in a way, you see the psychic ability kind of coming through him and his ability to see the past and to see the future and all kind of through the spice. But even prior to getting there, his dreams are kind of also functioning in this way. And so you could argue that even though the Bene Gesserits themselves seems to have kind of lost the psychicness in this book, that it's still embodied in Paul in some way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Thoughts on that? Uh, Jim, what do you think? Well, after, after, uh, after Paul sampled the water of life and he revived himself, he, I would have to describe him as a male Bene Gesserit mentat. Mm-hmm. Along that note, I completely forgot completely that Paul was a mentat uh, in training. Oh, yeah. Like, I forgot about that. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Like, And then as soon as I read that part, I was like, oh, it makes so much more sense yeah. in my head that he can do all these things as well because he's already conditioned for mentat training. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. My thing is I think that taking away from – they're no longer on Rossick, which was the place that gave the psychic abilities – so there's that aspect of the sisterhood. Uh, and we saw, what was her name? Started with an A. Amaril? No, no, no. Way back in Legends. Okay. The first, the first Benny Jesuit. Oh yeah, you know Honor Nora's Rue? mom? Yeah, no. The first Benny Jesuit, not the, not the sorceress. She was, she was the girlfriend of the first Sook doctor, Mohandas Sook. I don't remember. I well, know what you're talking about. Yeah. She had the disease and they put the thing in her, the, the chemicals in her, and she was awakened to change the chemistry in her body. Yeah. Um, if anybody in the chat room knows, please. Oh, no. They, Ryan's saying that Aaliyah showed psychic abilities being in people's heads. Yeah. So yeah. maybe well, we do see that evidence. That's what I was getting to. So I think that there's a latent, the latent ability of the, um, they, to, to each other, they can, can not communicate totally psychically, but they can pass their memories from one to another at that, that crucial moment when they're dying. I think that that's the, the real latent ability there. And as far as the mm-hmm. mental control over their body, that started back in legends of Dune. So that's oh, yeah. been refined and refined. And right, refined. right, right, right. Um, yeah. Why don't we talk about Paul's birth here a little bit? So we have two different locations for Paul's birth. Mm-hmm. So in the uh, legends books, he's born where he's born in Kayaten. Yeah. And in uh, but in this book, he's born on Kalanan, right? Or ca- yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, what sort of justification can we make for this discrepancy? Did Kevin J. Anderson and Brian Herbert just not read their father's book? Well, <laughs> from what I've read along this line, they say that this is we. Sh- if you look at the book as a as a historical piece of fiction, so somebody wrote this p- afterwards. 
Leto, or I'm sorry, Paul was born on Kaiten, but his naming ceremony was on Caladan. And as a result, what's the, recorded in history yeah, is the naming ceremony. Therefore, that's where he was, yeah. was born. It's kind of like receiving a birth certificate from somewhere, but you were actually born somewhere else. Right. 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 Yeah. Uh, Jim, thoughts on that? Uh, no, that, that's a great explanation. I was wondering that myself. That's a, yeah, it's good. Uh, let's talk about the Butler and Jihad. Um, in, in these, in this book, it's very vaguely talked about and it could be what we experienced in legends of Dune, or it could be something more simple where it was just a matter of humanity finding themselves too reliant on technology. And so religiously they, they threw it off. Any thoughts on, on, on that aspects of the story? Crickets. Crickets. <laughs> Cue the crickets. I thought maybe you had something, something there, Scott. And a rule, they're saying, I'm, I'm reading the chat room. Raquella, was Raquella the Raquella, yes. There you go. Say, that, who yeah. was that? That was Roland, came up with that. Yeah. So, kudos yeah. to Roland. Bonus points. But, so, what was the question again? I'm being distracted by the chat room. Thanks, chat room. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, we, were, <laughs> we were discussing the Butlerian Jihad philosophical versus real, real battle. Well, I mean, that's the, the idea. It's never really fleshed out. A lot of hints are given. We don't know that this is a physical battle. battle. And in a lot of ways, in Frank Herbert's world and universe, it's kind of almost an ideological battle where they're saying, well, this is what machines are doing to humanity. It has stagnated us. It's killed progress. Let's do away with the machines. And there's kind of the precepts are going to you know, set up so that we don't stray back into machines, mm -hmm. whereas we get this in a very much of a different Light, obviously, in the Butler and John, where it's really a physical battle. Yeah. We're talking 10,000 years has passed. Yeah. And when you look yeah. back in our 10,000-year history, there's a lot that if we went back and visited 10,000 years ago would be way different. Yeah. So yeah. I'm okay with this sort of uncertainty about the Butler and Jihad. The, the key word in, uh, I believe it said in the appendices, is they threw off the machines and defeated the God, is it God mind of the machines? That's up for interpretation. Yeah. Are we, but, is this ominous? Yeah. To me, that could be ominous. Sounds yeah. like ominous to me. Yeah, I'm yeah. okay with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There are a couple other small things in chat room while we're talking about these. If you notice any other differences, please throw them out and we'll, we'll talk about them. But, uh, a few quick things we have Jessica's acquisition. Uh, in, in this, they talk a lot about how, um, Paul or Leto sent somebody to find her and purchase her, where <laughs> we know that she was forced on him. Like they went to Caldan and, yeah, and that's forced certainly him. a difference. Right. If you look at history, maybe, maybe that's just a, there, you know, history is recorded, uh, uh, what's his name? Rombers. Yeah. Wrote the trip to get Rombers girl to Saya. So right. perhaps, you know, whatever. And the other is Duncan says his first kill uh, was on uh, Grumman when we all know that he, he killed on, uh, he, what is it, the uh, Guinness. Well, he, yeah, he, he killed he killed way before that. I mean, oh, yeah, he, he, he killed when he was on the planet being pursued by the Harkonnens. Giddy Prime. Yeah, I mean, so uh, mm -hmm. this reference isn't necessarily accurate, but it may be the first one that. May first one that's recorded. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Or, or it could be the first one since he has become a Ginas. 
Uh, that could be too, because you have to wonder how often would he be required to kill someone post training. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just gets a bunch of other people to do it for him. That's yeah. so true. <laughs> well, that, now, now that I even think about it, after he became a sword master, he led a couple attacks in the Prelude to Doom books. Yeah. But mm-hmm. anything in the chat room on that? No, no one's in the, no one's saying in the chat room. If they do pop up, we can pop back to it. Okay. Why don't we? Uh, why don't we move into some of our favorite points and moments in the plot? And uh, David, let's start with you. Well, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Okay, so reading it. Right, see, right now the chat room's off in this whole weird shaved head, Aaliyah getting into the mind of the one lady. So it's not, <laughs> they're not even paying attention to us. So we're going to pay attention to you, David. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. The way it should be. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so I was reading it, and this is the part that stuck out and stayed with me through the whole rest of the book. And I thought at that moment, this is my favorite, favorite part because it, it, so much change happens. And that's when. The first night that Paul and Jessica are in the tent in the desert and the spice is starting to change him. Just the casual uh, exposure that he's getting out in the desert to it. And the prescience is starting to kick in. He's starting to realize things about his his mother and understand her like he could never understand before. Realizing his mentat uh, side of him. And it's, it reminds me of the quote. I feel like, I don't remember if it's replayed in this story, but it was in one of the other books. And it was, uh, something along the lines of that moment when you realize that your parents are just people like you. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yep. And he's having, he's having this moment. We all have these moments. Yeah. When he, he is seeing his mother as Jessica and not as mom. And he's seeing her flaws. He's seeing, what she did to have him and what that's caused. Um, he's seeing, you know, the same thing in his father and all at the same time, he's also realizing his horrible destiny and the jihad comes into his mind, which I was surprised they mentioned in this, in this book. I, I completely forgot about it. Well, that. they're kind of worried. They're kind of were looking toward a future jihad. Here. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And he wants to avoid it. And that was my all time favorite part of this book. Hands down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jim, yeah. how about you? Okay, that that would be where Paul came to be the leader of the Fremen. Hmm. And when Gurney bowed down to him, or not, not Gurney, but uh, Stilgar bowed down to him oh, and, yeah. and promised him in front of everyone that he would be he would be loyal and support him. Yeah, yeah. That was a powerful moment. Yeah. And, and just along those lines, the moment where uh, he, well, right, th- right there, where he says, "You know, this is the moment where my friend became a worshiper," and and then he looks mm-hmm. at Gurney and wonders, "Do I have to lose him too?" Right, right. There's a lot of uh, that's one of the things I really liked is the struggle of Paul in this book. Yeah. You see that throughout that this is not a, you know, impassive rise to power. It's a rise to power. With a lot of heavy weight. Yeah. A lot of heavy weight going on. It, it's almost tragic. Yeah. Because he can't, he cannot have a normal life. He cannot just be, uh, Duke Paul Atreides. Uh, there's, it's way too complicated and he's got a lot of stuff going on. 
Well, this actually plays into the themes that we talk about, what we were going to mention later on, but it fits with what we're talking about. And that is that Frank Herbert writes Paul kind of as a, he's the hero of the book, but he's not the hero that was constantly being portrayed in this, you know, 50s and 60s, a Superman that, that's kind of invulnerable. He, he's a very vulnerable character, very torn character that is, the hero who's constantly questioning if what he's doing is right mm-hmm. and where it's heading. And so there's not a lot, yeah, he's not very secure in this. One of the things that came up in the bad reviews that we'll get to in the listener feedback is people were saying how he's, you know, he sees the future so he knows everything. My take is that he sees the, he sees the many futures and he sees the many possibilities that could come from a decision. Yeah. That is not knowing the future as much as it is knowing what could happen. Yeah. And mm-hmm. changing, you know, it influences your decisions and stuff. And then he gets to those black holes where he doesn't know what's going to happen. You know, it's interesting. The chat room is mentioning he's only 15. Yeah. Can you imagine being thrust? First of all, yeah, your father's just like been assassinated. Then you're thrust into the desert in this alien world with people you don't know and you're being raised up to a leader and your body's going through the, not only the hormonal changes, but then the spice changes. Holy Hannah, this kid's, this guy's, this guy's in a crap load of trouble. Yeah. Now, how old is he? Oh, well, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jim. Right off the bat, he doesn't know if he and his mother are going to be taken care of or if they're going to be rendered for their fluids. Yeah. 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 How old is he when the um, he becomes a quizic heteric official? I was going to say it's two years have passed. So it's 17? Is that right, Jim? I believe it is. Yeah. yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so one of my favorite parts in the book is actually, I, I, I loved this in the movie, but I loved it in the uh the way it played out in the book even better, and that is the first night he's in his bedroom and all these devices start going off and he's there, you know, he has this, the hunter seekers in there and, you know, trying to take him out and he just kind of uh, does what he does. And I just love the way that whole played. And I think tapped onto that, he ends up somewhere with his mother in the hydroponics garden type area and she's reading code off the leaf. I thought that was an incredibly written scene. I know that mm-hmm. I think those two scenes kind of combined mm-hmm. together. It was cool to see the um, more that was in in that room from knowing it from the prelude to doing. Oh yeah, series, yeah. how special mm-hmm. that room was. They're saying he was eighteen, so we're off by a year. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So other favorite other other favorite moments. The worm ride. I always thought that was cool. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell, you know, you know who we missed when we were talking about changes. We didn't talk about Jim's Fremen. Jim, Jim, tell us about how the Fremen changed in your eye uh, between the books. Um, a very hard people. Uh, there is no gray area with them. It's black or white. They either can use you or they can't. Yeah. And if they can't use you, you're you're going to be rendered for water. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's exactly. They just get they're more harsh. Yeah, and, yeah, and so. they they want to stick by the rules. Uh, that that I can't remember exactly what section that was in, but rules are rules. They're and ready for Paul. Ha- yeah, and Paul had to tell them no rules change. Mm. Yeah. 
Well, I would say the Fremen still carry out that little mentality, especially when Liet Kynes or when the initial Kynes, Father Kynes, first <laughs> encounters them and, and they're, they're, they're saying, well, they have to kill him. You know, he's coming to our CH. We have to knock him off. And even though that changed a little bit, they're kind of this black and white entity there even. Mm-hmm. But maybe I think, I think it's portrayed a little bit more starkly here in the Frank Herbert books. But I think that sentiment's kind of hinted at as being there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I agree. I we, agree. we learned a lot about the Fremen too in Paul killing, what was it, uh, Janus? Yeah. Was that? Yeah. When Paul killed him, we learned, we learned a lot about what expectations there are of the Fremen. Oh, yeah. Paul killed her, Paul killed her husband. And it's now his responsibility for at least a year to take care of her and the children. Mm-hmm. Um, a very straightforward group of people. Yeah. By the way, one of uh, Crunk, Crunk Lord's uh, favorite uh, scenes is the sandworm attacking the crawler factory scene. I'm trying to think of what happened to that scene. Well, the, oh, so, later yeah, goes out and then yeah, he's, yeah. Yeah, he saves yeah. all the people, but the crawler. Psh- yeah, in. and they realize this is yeah. a man who cares more about the people. Yeah, you know what? And I like that scene in the book. I like that scene even better in the Lynch movie. And we'll uh-huh. talk about that when we talk about the Lynch movie. But I thought that scene played out really well there. But I think it's obviously a powerful scene. It speaks about the heart of the Atreides. Yeah. Well, interesting. Oh, yeah. And not only that, but Liet, you know, uh, that's when Liet decided that maybe it wasn't so bad. Yeah, right. But in contrast, what sticks with you is at the end of, like, after the battle to get our Arakeen back, uh, Paul asks about equipment damage. And they say, what? And he's like, well, nothing that we can't fix. And Gurney thinks, since when did an Atreides care more about things than the people in the right. battle? Right. And that's, like, mm-hmm. a, a big counter difference. Even though Paul seems to be his father so much. In that one moment, he's kind of not. Well, that's right. I remember that, and that yeah. is a distinctive moment. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So other 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 moments. Let's uh, run through maybe one more moment if we have it. Sure. The I like the end scene where Paul is getting the the emperor to hand the throne over to him, and he has a very good scene. Yeah, and the way that the guild's like, no, 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 we're not going to bend to you, and he's like, yeah. You will, or there won't be any spice anymore. Like I will, and they and they point out they're like you're just as addicted as we are, and he's still like doesn't matter. I'm, you know, I'll do it, and you know I can do it. Uh, and I think that's the moment where we see the guild, and not only just the emperor, but the guild loses its power as well, and no longer becomes this, as we'll see if I remember correctly, this entity of its own power and control over the, everyone else, and it becomes. Uh, you know, it's still its own entity, but more of an arm of the emperor who can just say, this is what I want to do. And they have to let him do it. Mm. So mm. I thought that was, that was, and, and Irulan's really smart and just kind of like, this needs to be done. Like she doesn't argue. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, f- I did feel bad. You know, uh, one of my least favorite moments besides, I mean, there were a lot of least favorite moments, but the, the loss of his son, you know, whose son? Uh, Paul's. Oh yeah, and Paul's son. And then, and then when his concubine gets like gets to play second fiddle to Irulan, 
in name at least, and, yeah. and that whole thing is kind of a, you know, let's just do this for politics, and that reminds me very much of the old, old Duke, Duke. Yeah. the old Duke, right? Um, Jim, how about you? Another favorite moment? How can we leave out the death scene of Fade Rautha? Oh, someone yeah. mentioned that. Yeah, that yeah. that fight that now that fight was incredibly described in the book. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's a uh, and the whole like uh, the way that he fights. And and get, gets him to think that the the needles on the one side of his body, and then he's like, "Surprise! It's on the other mm-hmm. side of my body." Like I thought that was that was, that was a good fight scene. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's nope. basically the climax fight scene. You think? Yeah. I mean, you think that the big battle would be the climax, but it's really just this man on man kind of struggle. Oh yeah, yeah. And then the implications that go with that. I mean, it was the end of the Harkonnens. They're done. Mm-hmm. And Shaddam had chosen Fade to be his champion. Mm-hmm. And so that ended Shaddam. Um, it was, it, there were a lot of, a uh, lot of important things going on in that scene. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I initially going into, the, when we were going into this book, I would have suspected it would be the beast that would have been the one that would have been having this battle, but it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and let's also note this is the end of the Harkonnens. Yeah. You know, they're, they're mm-hmm. done. Yeah, this is the last, the last one. So that's kind of an interesting concept. It couldn't. Have, well, no, it it's couldn't not. Have been. It's, it, let, back up. It's not the last of the Harkonnens. How so? Because Paul is Harkonnen. Well, okay, but I mean, like the Harkonnen okay. house. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay, got it. The house, yes. Yeah. But the Harkonnens still live on through the blood of the Atreides. Yeah, yeah through the blood of the Atreides. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's uh, let's move on. We have a little bit of things on. Uh, let's discuss themes real briefly okay. here. We uh, we did the heroism. Uh, we didn't really talk about the first three that are listed here. So why don't you uh, take them? We talk. One of the things they cover is environmentalism and ecology. Oh yes, something that was touched on in the other books, but yeah. more so here, especially in the appendices. Did you read the appendices? No, I didn't. I was listening. I didn't read the. I didn't actually read the appendices in the listening. Okay. The yeah, I'm surprised because it's actually they the well the first two parts of the appendices have Irulan quotes at the beginning and are just like books that she would have written. And one of them is just a brief overview of the history of Pardot kinds. And uh that's it was kinda hard to read because I was like oh, so much of it was just the same that we had before, except for he gets more into detail about what it took and how much of the of Dune had been changed at this point. Uh which I thought was was really cool. And a, a side note, didn't it make the scene where Liet was dying so much more powerful, knowing how Pardot acted like that towards him in life? And it was he was really seeing visions of the way his his dad treated him. I thought that was that was pretty cool. Hmm. Um, so yeah, a lot of this like going, you know, one third of the planet can change the whole planet type of thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts from you? Yeah, I you know it just it's just exactly what you were saying, and kind of continue to look at them changing uh, the planet, believing that rain can fall again, believing that the moisture's there. Uh, the whole idea that there are certain parts of the planet that they can't fly over, mm-hmm. and rumors of it being green to kind of show the progress of the kind, you know, vision way back when in mm-hmm. legend. I thought that was good, but. 
Jim, anything to add? Uh, yeah, and I'm wondering, has anybody thought ahead to what would happen if they did uh, remake the surface of the planet? What's going to happen to the spice? What's going to happen to the worms? Ah, is yeah. is all that going to go away at some point? I think that's a so, in the future. There's there's a lot of there, oh, there's a lot of conflicting. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry, we're talking over you, Jim. No. <laughs> Finish your thought. Okay. I, I apologize. That's all right. There's a lot of conflicting ideas going on here as far as conservation is concerned. Yeah. 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 Um, Dreamer, uh, Ryan White saying the Dreamer of Dune goes into a lot of detail in the history of Frank Herbert's environmentalism and how it plays in. Mm, that should be interesting. When so we we'll, have to, we'll, have to, we'll read that book eventually. Yeah. So. Um, in the appendices, in the Pardot Kinds section, he speaks about the fact that there will always be desert because you need spice. And in that section, he, they go into great detail about the life cycle of the worms where they come from, what they do, how they're the reason there's no water on Arrakis. So, Jim, did you get did you get a chance to read the appendices? Uh, I did. Okay. Uh, but it's been it's been a week now, so yeah, yeah. See, I'm 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 older than you guys, so the memory doesn't work as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, all right. Well. Yeah, so that is that is addressed that they, you know they always need to keep them there, and he also speaks about how something about the uh, can because of the way the soil is when they condition an area, that area becomes toxic to the worms. Where you know they kind of took over the planet and made it a desert planet because, excuse me, the water wasn't toxic to them. You know they hit it, they kind of seal it up. The sand trout seal it up, and uh, the water, because of the nitrogen that's that's in the soil, keeps the sand trout from coming near. It's toxic to them. Mm. So, oh, very good. Yeah. So let's talk about declining empires. Uh, I mean, I think that's an overarching theme that's with us from the other books. I mean, well, even from the Butler and Jihad, you're the Empire of the Robots and the uh, Cymex, yeah, the Cymex, and right, and them them coming down, and then you have. Um, the beginning, the rise, the I guess the decline of the original um, democracy that the planets were in, and the rise of the empire. And now we here we have the, the 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 collapse of the empire in a sense of the emperor and uh, the Harkonnen line being kind of weeded out. Yep. And even but even House Vernes is kind of weeded out in some ways. So you see the decline of families. And so that's certainly a theme that's running through it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't really have much more to comment on that. That's, I mean, that's basically what you're seeing. It is a, it is something that he obviously felt uh, passionate about talking yeah. about. Yeah, you know, things change. Yeah, you know, one of the things that uh, that's brought up in uh, one of the notes that I think the notes where we pulled these from that we were reading is that gender roles and how they're addressed in Frank Herbert's book. Mm-hmm. You know, women with the Bene Gesserits, you th- you would think get a little bit more of a prominent role, mm-hmm. but but um, uh, a lot of what I was reading said that these women are still functioning in pretty traditional roles. We aren't looking at anything really break out. Frank Herbert's not doing anything extremely new or out of their roles that would be expected in the 60s. Yeah, you know, my comment to this is it's, he, 
he makes a hint that they're stronger, right? Like he says, the Fremen women are just as strong as the men, and like you know, the women do the fighting for them, right? Uh, and stuff. And uh, the Bene Gesserit have power, but I see what they're saying there. But if, but I think that a lot of the bad, some of the bad reviews touched on this. And my thing, and they were like, we'll never read any others. If you read further, especially when you get to God Emperor of Dune, the entire army is women. And he, you know, he notes how they're stronger and they're, they become more powerful when they see the, their, um, society as their child that they need mm. to protect. And mm. it's like a big thing. And that, I think that role of the women being the strong continues to prevail through the Herbert books. Right. Right. Yeah, and well, and not only that, you you also have uh, a Bene Gesserit judging a royal descendant with a Gom Jabbar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Dark, so, darker 40, you know, hang on. Darker's 45 just said, it's interesting there's no ladies on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> One just walked in. She's in charge. She told me to meet her before I left. That's right. That's right. She's really running this house. <laughs> <laughs> But, but you know, the women have not asserted themselves as of yet in this book. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, we, and, and, and someone also mentioned, and this kind of, I guess, hot in, in Pennsylvania right now since it just uh, lifted the gay marriage ban, but the way he kind of portrays homosexuality through the Baron, it's not a very positive thing. And um, some people have kind of commented on that. Well, it's also pedophilia. Oh, and that is true. That's not a very positive thing either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. In, yeah. in the God Emperor book, uh, they, when they're talking about the women being the army, uh, lesbianism is encouraged in that, in that, and they talk about that. A character is disgusted by it and they talk about. Now, do you think Frank that? Herbert responded to people's criticism of his initial book and kind of wrote these things in later on? I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, I don't remember how much time is physical, real life time between the two, between Dune Messiah and Dune. Um, if there was, you know, substantial amount of time or not, but, yeah. uh, I can't help but think that this stuff was on his mind anyway, since it's so written in here that, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Let's someone, someone channel. Frank Herbert, or we just need to get a Ben Jezzer in here that can actually yeah. get the voices of well, Frank we, Herbert. We would need a quiz cataract. Yeah, we, we did. Well, we're, we are and have been for a while living in an entire different era as far as how homosexuality is, is viewed. Yeah, mm-hmm. certainly. Okay. Um, I'll tell you what, when, when, when I was a kid, all male homosexuals were pedophiles. Period. Yeah, they were something. They were monsters. They were to be feared. Now, this is fifty years, forty, forty years ago, fifty years ago. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, views have changed a whole lot. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, you can you can see that view in this book, I guess. Yeah, if that was the time. Yeah. You know, well, absolutely. Certainly. If yeah. if Frank wanted uh, the Baron Harkonnen to be hated. That was probably the fastest way to do it. Yeah. yeah. That's the way our culture was, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Jim, why don't you bring us into uh, favorite quotes? Yes. Okay. 
Uh, I see, David, you have some quotes there. Would you like to bring those out? Certainly. Now, uh, the ones that I have written down here are, are all quotes from Princess Irulan in some fashion. Uh, Can I just interrupt? They just sure. mentioned that uh, Frank, um, it was rather surprising. This is from Bridget Rathgear, said, it's rather surprising to Frank when he found his second son, Bruce, was a homosexual. Really? And see, I didn't know that. Huh. But, mm. And he also mentioned that Ryan says there's Am- Amazonian bodyguards with Aaliyah in the Winds of Dune. Okay. Now I haven't read Wounds of yeah, Dune yet, but, so yeah. I'm excited to get there. Yeah. So anyways, I'm sorry about that. So yeah, that, no. favorite quotes. Favorite quotes. Okay. Deep in the human consciousness is a pervasive need for a logical universe that makes sense. But the real universe is always one step beyond logic. I love that quote. Yeah. I, I do too. Mm-hmm. I just think it, it just so how, how we grasp to be like, to know everything, but we never really can understand what's happening around us. Yeah. Uh, my next one is when religion and politics travel in the same cart, the riders believe nothing can stand in their way. Their movements become headlong faster and faster and faster. They put aside all thoughts of obstacles and forget the precipice does not show itself to the man in a blind rush until it's too late. I like that one too. Yeah. Just talking about that's that. almost prophetic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very, yeah, it really is. Uh, that's, you know, every single quote pertained to something that was going to happen in that chapter or later. Yeah. You know, it was really, yeah. you know, really there. So uh, mm-hmm. this one, I, I, this one, I can't remember if that Irland said this or if this is just a quote directly from something that uh, Paul was thinking, but I'm pretty sure she had said it. So any road followed precisely to its end leads precisely nowhere. Climb the mountain just a little bit to test that it's a mountain. From the top of the mountain, you cannot see the mountain. I, I like that. I yeah. like that. The idea that you're in something when you're in the moment of something, you can't see it. You yeah, know? you can't truly see the. Bigger yeah, you picture can't truly tr- see how it really. Yeah, comes out. So mm-hmm. I like that. And those are so. Those in are other rules. words, in other words, don't throw stones in glass houses. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and don't go chasing waterfalls. That's right. To quote TLC. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my word. You just quoted TLC in the Dune Saga podcast. You realize what? that? Yeah, yeah. You just got that? <laughs> All right. Okay. And Scott, what did you come up with? No, oh, let me start my quotes with Super Howlett. And uh, a popular man arouses the jealousy of the powerful. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm reading Proverbs when I say that. <laughs> It sounds just like that. And then I had to put this one in here because we are in Dune. I mean, come on, the <laughs> Bene Gesserit litany against fear. I must not, you heard at the beginning of the show, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is a little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see his path. Where fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. Mm-hmm. That quote has permeated the series from the beginning. Now, again, remember, I'm reading this really from the beginning and having really encountered Dune, but it was a long time since I encountered Dune. It was neat to kind of see this and to think about this is the book that this quote originated from. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I really liked it from that. I had to put it in there because of that. Uh, it's powerful. I mean, it's a powerful yeah. quote. Yep. Two other quotes here, one long, one short. Uh, this one comes from the conclusion of the commentaries in Appendix 2, The Religion of Dune. Much 
that was called religion has carried on the unconscious attitude of hostility towards life. This is where it really like it. The true religion must teach that life is filled with joys, pleasing to the eyes of God, and that knowledge without action is empty. All men must see that the teaching of religion by rules and rote is largely a hoax. Proper teaching is recognized with ease. You can know it without fail because it awakens within you that sensation which tells you this is something you've always known. I want to stop for just a moment here, just just a brief moment to talk about where this came from in the appendices. We've been talking and talking and talking about what is the Orange Catholic Bible? Where did it come from? What's going on? This chapter in the appendices covers the history of the Orange Catholic Bible and why it was created. And to give, since you didn't have the option to read it, right. to give you a brief summary, after the Butlerian Jihad, the, uh, all that they realized that religions didn't fit up to what humanity solves itself. So the major religions all sent people to what they call it, Old Earth. We, we can discuss if it was Earth or not, but they sent them to Earth, and they all came together and said, let's write a new Bible that includes all of our perceptions on life and what's right and what's wrong, but doesn't pertain to uh, strict the same sort of strict rules that they had, so that as humanity grows, it can still look back at this book. And they talk about how it was... You know, some of the people who came up with it were killed then because they, they it was thought of such heresy. But now, thousands of years later, it is the standard. Right. So It is the standard. Anyway, right. just want to take a moment for that. Yeah. By the way, uh, Crunk Lord said, Seeking freedom and becoming captive of your desires, seek discipline and find your liberty. Dakota. Ah, uh, yeah. So he, he liked that one. Cool. Yeah. I had one other quote here. Um and that is Hope Clouds Observation by Reverend Mother Gaius Mahalan. So, yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. So, yeah. Uh, um, okay. we can get, so, Jim. Okay. I, I have just a few. Uh, as a matter of fact, you guys just about covered everything I found also, but I had a couple of extra ones. Um, this is Thufer. Uh, I sat across from many rulers of great houses, but never seen a more gross and dangerous pig than this one. Mm. Talking, mm. talking about the Baron. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And this, this kind of sums everything up for me in the, the theme or the reason for the book. Uh, as it is, the, the Padishah Emperor turned against House Atreides because the Duke the Duke's war masters, Gurney Halleck and Duncan Idaho, had trained a fighting force, a small fighting force, to within a hair as good as the Sardaukar. Some of them were even better. Wow. Hmm. It's an extra so, flair for him to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. By the way, Ryan White, mm -hmm. we, haven't, we haven't read Sisterhood and Mentats. They're saying that they go into more detail about the fallout of the Orange Catholic Bible and its impact on House Carino. Oh, great, great. So we'll mm -hmm. get that. Great. Uh, briefly, and, Tufer, were you surprised that he so easily easily turned to the, to the Baron? They don't really go into it. It's just like next thing you know, he serves the Baron. He's playing him the whole time, though. Yeah. I think he's playing. Like, I, I didn't believe it that he was really with the baron yeah i just still surprised how much he helped even though he was there yeah. but anyway sorry yeah i i felt the same way i i i didn't get that at all 
why he did that. Uh, one last quote, beyond a critical point within a finite space, freedom diminishes as numbers increase. This is as true of humans in the finite space of a planetary ecosystem as it is of gas molecules in a sealed flask. The human question is not how many can possibly, uh, at any rate, uh, my quote ran out there. But, <laughs> yeah, the tighter you pack people, the more trouble you're going to have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Bridger Ethier said, it is his quote. I just lost it. Scrolling, chat room scrolling up too fast. Uh, <laughs> there should be a science of discontent. People need hard times and oppression to develop from psychic muscles. From the Collected Sayings of Moabdi by Princess Erlon. Nice. Nice. Yeah. You know, wow. just a quick observation here. Yeah. I would, I would love to read the books that Irulan wrote. Oh, yes. Yeah. Especially yeah. in my father's house. I would, I would pay a lot of money to read that book. Yeah. I think what we're coming up with here is that we're going to be pretty much total, total BA guys by the end of this about Dune. We're going to have it all in our heads. Right? <laughs> <laughs> because we're mentats. Because like we're mentats, men, right? Men. So it's going to be up to us to write the Orange Catholic Bible and Irlan's right. books and just rack in the dough. There we go. There we go. That's the solution. Okay. But yeah, let's, we, let's move into. We just have to avoid Omnius. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's let's move into some closing things here. Rating the book. I don't know if you guys are going to be. Uh, what's that? I was going to say that before we do that, there were two questions that the chat room posed that I thought that actually played in a little bit to our closing thoughts. Excellent. Here. They Excellent. aren't in your notes because they posed them. Um, David Scott and Jim, did the book live up to your expectations after reading the prequels and the legends? David, go. Yes. Actually, it exceeded my expectations. And I'm going to say that's kind of hard to do because I've already read it. But there was so much that I felt that reading in this order added to the book. So rather than getting mad at the other books for, for adding stuff to something so beloved – Reading, reading Dune, I enjoyed how much it added to it and uh, just kind of gave me a deeper meaning of what I was reading. This was the second question they asked, actually, which you kind of answered. Oh. Did you guys think that reading Dune with the background knowledge from the prequels and legends made the story richer? Or does it take away some of that enticing mystery? Okay. Uh, Jim, do you want to answer these two questions? You know, I, I can't say it any better than David did. Uh, yes. Dune exceeded my expectations, and yes, it uh, it was very enriching to have read the six books that we read previously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for me, I, I would agree with that. I don't think that it – did it take away some of the enticing mystery? I suppose, yes. I mean – now we can't sit down and, uh, you know, go out for a bite to eat after reading Dune and discuss what was this Butlerian Jihad supposed to be like because we read it and we have a definitive account according to Kevin Jay and Brian, right? So some of that mystery has been lost, but I didn't feel like it was a loss. I felt like, if anything, that I came in having my head on straight about what was going on in the background. This helped me understand the current world. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I want to point out here is something that we covered before about the mystery being uh, taken away. 
the book already opens right up. Herbert was notorious for just giving stuff away. I mean, if that's anything to, to take from this, I mean, uh, you know, you know, Huey's going to be the bad guy. You know, there's no questions to whether Paul becomes the Messiah. It's just like, it's all out there right away. So in some ways it's kind of like the same type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, go ahead. I interrupted your closing thoughts here, but go ahead. Sure. Sure. So let's talk about our rating for the book. I know me, uh, when we started reading, when we started the series, I could have said in my head, Four out of five. We're here now. Five out of five. No doubt. And and that's only because I was holding back because God Emperor is my favorite. But now I'm just like. All bets are off. All All bets bets are are off, off, baby. (laughs) Jim, how about you? Uh, Well, I would have to agree five out of five because since it's Frank Herbert's work, I think I would probably get lynched. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, 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 maybe I'll be the one that gets lynched. 4.75 out of 5. Okay. I'm not going to quite give it the 5. There are just, there are times, and see, this is a complaint that I have with J.R. Tolkien, and you got to understand that okay. I love Frank Herbert, and I am a, I have every single J.R. Tolkien book leather bound behind me, sitting on the shelf, along with all the histories and notes that his son Christopher Tolkien. So I love Tolkien, but one of my complaints about Fellowship of the Ring, which is hailed as the crowning achievement in fantasy, is that it does get a bit ponderous at times. And co- so based on the fact that at times it becomes a bit and I realize this is what Frank Herbert's praised for, but when you're reading a story, you're telling a story, and you're drawing people along a narrative, it does become just a little bit ponderous at times. And so my quarter of a point I take off is just for that. Okay. And absolutely, other than that, I absolutely love this book. It is it's probably the highest rating I gave any of the books so far, so if that puts into any perspective. Jim can be found at, I mean, I mean, Scott can be found at, you know, yeah. his home address. So, uh, <laughs> Bolton at. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Well, the next thing that we review for next month is David Lynch's Dune. Yeah, so we're taking a break from the books, actually. Yes, yes. Now, there may be people who don't want to see David Lynch's Dune or or whatnot. So at the same time of us discussing what we're expecting to see in this movie, let's also take a moment to, uh, since it's fresh in our mind, what do you think is going to happen in Paul of Dune? I heard rumors that Paul of Dune takes place during Dune. Really? Or part, partly during Dune. I don't think it's, is it, is it a between book or is it a, I well, mean, I don't know. I, I haven't read it. So I heard, see, I haven't read it either. First, this is the first book in our series so far that I haven't read. It. Uh, and, from what I understand, it takes place between Dune and Dune Messiah with flashbacks oh, to the War of Assassins, oh, which okay. should which should explain what happened to House Phineas. All right. So. Oh, oh good. Yeah. Good, Jim. good. Jim? I'm expecting to learn what happened to Paul uh, before he came back as the mysterious hooded stranger who was blind. Right. Oh yeah. Definitely like yeah. a jack gap. Yeah. 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 Where we- what, what happened to cause what, what caused this? What, what went wrong? Uh, what happened to his relationship with the Fremen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious to see more about the 
beginning of the jihad and how Paul handles it. He's so anti it at this point, and in Dune Messiah, he's so given up to the fact that it's a thing. Uh, he doesn't like it, but he's given mm-hmm. up fighting it. Yeah. And I, I'm curious to see that that fighting, uh, internal fight that he, he has. So as far as the movie goes, it's been forever since I've seen seen the David Lynch movie. I'm expected to be angry, to be a little bit bored, and to be excited to talk about it. But we'll be seeing it on the big screen. So we what, more can we, what, can we, what can we ask about it? Yeah. yeah. So once again, we will be watching David Lynch's Dune on June 15th. That's Father's Day at 3 p.m., at Penn Cinema in Lidditz, Pennsylvania. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you come there. Don't worry. We're recording it. We'll have it to be part of a, a show in some sort of way. And we will be doing a a regular show on the David Lynch film afterwards, right? Right. Yeah, this is just a, a little bit of uh, addition. Think of it as a, a bonus live um, to those who are in the audience, uh, listener feedback kind of show for David Lynch's Dune. And then subsequently... We'll also be doing Jodorowsky's Dune on Wednesday, June 18th at 6 p.m. at the Zotropolis Art House in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Absolutely. So if you're local, we want to see you there. Uh, if you can't be there, uh, we expect a five-page write-up on why you can't be there. Right, right, <laughs> right. right. Uh, uh, another final final closing thought that we're going to – I spoke last time. We had a, a contest going on uh, and – to enter, you had to send in a voicemail uh, for us to play on our listener feedback show. And Rick Tetrault won the book Dune, hardcover awesome. of Dune. So we have another giveaway. I have the hardcover of Dune Messiah. So I'm getting the feeling that a lot of people don't like to call in or, or send voicemails. So I'm going to say all you have to do is submit listener feedback for do we want to see the movie? Well, why don't we say? Why don't you say it in iTunes review? We could do that. Oh, yeah, okay. And if you've done it, just say, "Hey, we've done this. We've submitted an iTunes review and copy us on it." Yeah, so if you've done that already. We'll we'll take any past reviews you've already submitted and want to throw into the contest. But yeah, so if you are in the U.S., leave an iTunes review and you'll be automatically entered, and we will draw who um, who wins a hardcover copy of Dune Messiah, and we will do that by the next time uh, we record, which we'll have on the website, we'll record for uh, David Lynch's Dune movie, and then I can we can have it mailed to you by the time it's time to read the book. So there you go. Very good. So, and if I can add to that, congratulations, Admiral. Way to go. Yeah, yeah way to go, Rick. I don't, I don't think he – I think yep. he submitted it without even knowing. You're missing the chat. I really – the chat room, you guys, you guys should be on to the chat room right now. They're saying <laughs> – you know, like, yeah, Penn Street is through fear for me to travel. <laughs> and then like, someone else said, Penn, that's 30 thumpers away. Come on. <laughs> oh, my. Hey, I'm out oh, here in Nebraska. God. How far do you think it is for me? It'd be a long worm ride. Like, uh, <laughs> how many worms would it take you to get here? That's what I want to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, let's Google it. I'm sure Google can tell us. Google can tell us. I'm going to look that up for next yeah. time. How far? Maybe we can ask Siri. Siri might tell us how many worms, how many worms ridden would it take to get from this state to this state? To this state, yeah. Yeah. I like I'm that. not programmed yeah. to respond in that area. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who was our mentat? Br- Bridge of Heathgrove is our mentat, right? Yeah, yeah. He, he might know. He might, he might know. know. Yeah. He might know. There we go. Uh, so, how to get in touch with us. 
You can email your thoughts on the upcoming movie review to dunesagapodcast at gmail.com. Or you can call our new voicemail line, That's which right. is, Scott? one two six zero five seven seven chat Or it's one two six zero five seven seven two four two eight. Yep. Get yours today. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that is a, a Google Voice number. So yes. if um, you're concerned about the area code or whatever, use Google Voice. Get in touch yep. with us that way. Absolutely. And we have a widget on for um, what's the other – not Stitch. It's not Stitcher. What's the voice app? I don't know. There's another voice app that you can call okay. there. But. Great. Yeah. And there's a link right on the website yeah. to it. So A speak pipe. That's, that's it. Doing. Yep. Yep. So you can also get in touch with us through our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Dune Podcast, and follow us on Twitter at, at Dune Saga Podcast. Lots of new followers this month. Great yep, to see you Yep, shout out, there. shout out to my peeps, yo. Holla. Yep. <laughs> so, now remember, you can always visit dunesagapodcast.com, our main hub, to find out everything you need to know about going on. You can look at our back episodes there. Um, we've got some nice art up. You can see on the calendar, right on the side. Uh, when we'll be recording again, as well as you can purchase the purchase links there for all of the books that we're reading. So, Jim, why don't you take us out? Okay. Once again, for the Dune Saga Podcast, I'm Jim Arrowwood. I'm David Moulton. And I'm Scott Herzog. And may Shai Hulud clear the path before you. <laughs>